Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week, the podcast where we go through all of the damn interesting links on damninteresting.com. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Uh, the first link that we have today comes from The Verge by Sean Hollister. This is called The FDA Just Approved the First Prescription Video Game for Kids with ADHD. Ooh. <gasps> oh, that makes me so happy. Games just became medicine, guys. <laughs> is it Minecraft? <laughs> <laughs> it's not Minecraft. Um, uh. And it doesn't look like much of a video game. There's like a little bit of a teaser and it kind of looks like a little bit of game by committee. But, you know, that probably was the case because this is the first video game to be legally marketed and prescribed as medicine in the U.S. And that decision comes from our very own FDA, which is authorizing mm. doctors to prescribe the iPhone and iPad game for kids between ages 8 and 12 with ADHD. You know what that means? Wow. That means the insurance company has to buy the iPad as a medical device. Yes. <laughs> uh. Finally. I, don't know. I have so much glee about that, and I don't know why. I should. <laughs> hey, you know, the system is not usually that lenient when it comes to, you know, supporting healthcare, especially mental health care. So take it while you can, man. Yeah. This game went under seven years of clinical trials, which is kind of a, a lifetime for video games, but some AAA titles will take that long. But they basically started studied over 600 children to figure out whether or not a game could actually make a difference in this kind of arena. And The Verge is very careful to note that according to the company's favorite of the five studies, the answer is yes. About one third <laughs> right. of kids treated no longer had a measurable attention deficit on at least one measure of objective attention after playing the obstacle dodging target collecting game for 25 minutes a day, five days a week for four weeks. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I can see how they would really, really want to take their time to really make sure on the data because there's such a prejudice of like, oh, no, these things make kids worse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and there's definitely room for if you have an obsessive personality, it can cause problems in other ways. You know, you have to mm. like any medicine, you have to use it carefully. But I'm glad that they actually made the effort to say, no, we've really, without a doubt, spent the time and studied and made sure this is having an effect. Yeah, I mean, the sample size is pretty modest, 600 kids, but the game is called Endeavor RX, and the company is saying that improvements in ADHD impairments following a month of treatment with this game were maintained for up to a month. And the common side effects are frustration, it's a video game, <laughs> and headache, which are pretty mild if you think about some of the other side effects that you're getting from traditional pharmaceutical treatments, right? Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But again, we're talking about a study by doctors who work for the game's developer, and that's mm. what the disclosures at the bottom of the study are careful to note. And even their conclusion is that the results, quote, are not sufficient to suggest that AKLT01, which I'm guessing is the beta or pilot test of the game, should be used as an alternative to established and recommended treatments for ADHD. No, I, yeah. I think the good way to look at it, I think, is like physical therapy. You know, if you're in a horrible car wreck, you still need a cast and antibiotics and stuff mm -hmm. to get the bone set. But then you also need physical therapy to get strong again. Yes. So there's different aspects you can strengthen with any disease. 
Exactly. Yeah, it sounds like this game is kind of like the gummy bear supplement that you get to take as a kid. <laughs> yes. You're like, oh, yes, finally, I get to take the one that tastes good. Yeah, yeah and I'm absolutely. sure for a lot of kids who are very resistant to taking or really just dealing with the side effects of a lot of pharmaceutical medication, this is something that should get both kids and parents a little excited, as well as for the future of what this might mean for not only ADHD, but potentially Alzheimer's. Even though this is the first prescription video game that's been approved, the pharmaceutical company Bayer did introduce an FDA-approved glucose meter called Digit that could plug into a Nintendo DS back in 2010, which basically gamified testing glucose levels. So if a kid was testing a glucose level, they could then spend points when they were low enough into this exclusive type of video game. So that was kind of an early step to apply game theory, but this is a little different in that it's a game specifically designed to address and treat ADHD. I think I'd want to talk to some of the kids and find out if they actually liked it. Because I think it's a subject that people have been into for a long time, but you often get people who are not game developers trying to, you know, jump in on this hot new idea and not actually making good games out of it. So I would, I hope that there's a good game underneath it. They have a little video preview in the Verge article. It's about 30 seconds. So you can kind of see what the world building is like or what some of the actions and gameplay is like. But I don't know if it's going to be beneficial to really expect it to look a lot like some beloved franchises. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next link. Next, Next link. link. So what if all viruses disappeared? Ooh, that would be nice. <laughs> Yeah. Viruses, as we know them, seem to exist only to wreak havoc on society and just make humans suffer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So if given the choice to magically wave a wand and make all viruses disappear, a lot of people would probably jump at that. But scientists say that this would actually be a deadly mistake. Deadlier, in fact, than any virus could actually be. Really? Yeah. Tony Goldberg, who is an epidemiologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, says, If all viruses suddenly disappeared, the world would be a wonderful place for about a day and a half, and then we'd all die. That's the bottom line. (laughs) It turns out the vast majority of viruses aren't actually pathogenic to humans, and they play integral roles in propping up ecosystems. So, I mean, we're talking about, like, basically probiotic viruses. Because, like, I think most people are aware, yeah, there's bad bacteria and there's good bacteria. And there are Mm -hmm. even actually some good funguses other than the kind that ferment our foods. There's actually beneficial fungal species that live in us. But there's probiotic viruses as well, you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. So phages or viruses that infect bacteria are extremely important. The name comes from the Greek phagein, I believe, or phagein, meaning to devour. And devour they do. They're major predators of the bacterial world, and they're the primary regulator of bacterial populations in the ocean. So if viruses suddenly disappeared, some bacterial populations would explode, while others would probably be outcompeted and stop growing completely. Okay. Yeah. And that's especially problematic in the ocean, where more than 90% of all living material by weight is microbial. I had no idea. That's That is a lot. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. That's a lot of weight. And those microbes produce about half the oxygen on the planet, which is a process entirely enabled by viruses. Uh, so I guess I do like breathing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the viruses kill 20% of all oceanic microbes and 50% of all oceanic bacteria every day. So by culling microbes, viruses ensure that the oxygen-producing plankton have enough nutrients to undertake high rates of photosynthesis, mm. 
which in turn gives us all the oxygen that we need. Mm. And as the article points out, without death, we don't have life. So viruses are actually really important recyclers, just like maggots or any other type of hmm. gross insect, tiny thing that we don't usually <laughs> like to think about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does make sense in that, you know, you can't completely wipe out anything and not disrupt an ecosystem. Right. But surely... Yeah. There are classifications where we can say, okay, we'll let the bacteriophages live and we'll (laughs) try to really aggressively target the ones we don't like. Absolutely. I think we would probably be fine without COVID or any of the coronaviruses. (laughs) Agree. Personally. Yeah. They talk a little bit about the viruses that are critical for maintaining the ecosystem. So one of the things that they found is that viruses are really critical for species population control, especially in insect pests, which is what they studied. So if a certain species becomes overpopulated, a virus will come through and wipe them out, typically. Uh, It's a very natural part of ecosystems, and the process is called kill the winner. And it's common (laughs) in many other species, including our own. Wow. I was going to say, I mean, if you really want to get broad brain perspective on it, you can just imagine a little insect with his little scientific lab coat going, oh, no, we need the viruses that attack humans because without them, the human population would just explode and the world would not survive. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, pretty much. Absolutely. And researchers actually do think that viruses are integral for maintaining healthy microbiomes in our own bodies. And they've found some research supporting this idea. In one study, they examined a fungus that will colonize a specific type of grass in Yellowstone National Park. And they found that that virus that infects the fungus allows the grass to become tolerant to geothermal soil temperatures. And it requires all three. So if the virus, the fungi, and the plant aren't there, then the plant cannot grow in those hot soils. The fungus alone will not do it. So it requires the virus to be Hmm. present. That one's going to be probably pretty useful in the coming future, I imagine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, In another study, they also found that a virus that passes through jalapeno seeds will actually allow infected plants to deter aphids because aphids (gasps) are more attracted to plants that don't have the virus. So it's actually beneficial. I want that for my peppers. I'm on board with jalapenos. Those are good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They've also discovered that plants and fungi will commonly pass viruses from generation to generation. And they haven't yet pinpointed the function of many of these viruses, but they assume they have to be helping their hosts somehow. Mm. Infection with certain benign viruses can even help ward off some pathogens in humans. Mm -hmm. So GB virus C, which is a common bloodborne human virus that is non-pathogenic and is a distant relative of the West Nile and dengue fever, is linked to actually delayed progression to AIDS in HIV-positive people. Wow. Yeah, an interesting one here that I didn't know is that herpes apparently makes mice less susceptible to certain bacterial infections, including bubonic plague and listeria. What? Oh, I mean, yeah. I guess if you got to pick bubonic plague or herpes, I guess you choose herpes. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as the article points out, infecting people with herpes virus, bubonic plague, and listeria to replicate that experience would be unethical. Right. But mm-hmm. the study's authors do suspect that their findings in rodents likely apply to humans. Well, I guess we're going to have to rethink our position on viruses, but <laughs> I don't have to like it. Yeah. yeah. Hashtag not all viruses. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's fine to hold a grudge against certain viruses that may be rocking the world right now. Uh Uh, Although it's interesting because viruses are actually apparently some of the most promising therapeutic agents for treating certain maladies. So there's this idea of phage therapy 
where they would try to use viruses to target bacterial infections. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've heard a lot about manipulating or changing the phages in order to get them to deliver what you want them to deliver. I didn't realize there were some that were natural species that did some right. useful stuff on their own. The Trojan horsing of genetically engineering some of these viruses, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like we actually also have viruses that just have lived with us for generations and even played an important role in our evolution. So viruses hold a massive repository of genetic innovation that other organisms can incorporate. Ooh. So what can happen is if they get into a germline cell, which is eggs or sperm, the viral code can be passed on to the next generation and become permanently integrated. Ooh. Actually, all organisms that are infected with viruses have an opportunity to take viral genes and incorporate them into their own DNA. And this is actually becoming recognized as a new major mode of evolution. Apparently, about 8% of the human genome is made up of viral elements, and they even think that viruses have played a role in the human evolution of the placenta, going back to 130 million years ago. Wow. Whoa. So like yeah, all, it's... all mammalian birth, basically, we owe to viruses. Yeah, most likely. Scientists are only just figuring out how viruses help us sustain life because they've only just started to look. Mm -hmm. And they really think that the future of therapeutics is in creating these finely tuned specific viruses that can help us attack certain types of bacterial infections or maybe even other viruses. But the more we learn about viral diversity, the more we'll learn about how the planet and our mm -hmm. ecosystems and our own bodies work. Well, I guess we can do it then. I don't know. I mean, I, the, yeah. the, the best I can hope for is like maybe it will turn out that a COVID infection after you've recovered will then give you immunity to something else or just superpowers. I mean, that would be fine, too. Yeah. Yeah. I think superpowers is a very fair consolation prize for anyone who's had to suffer this and can survive it. Yeah. I'll take my laser eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. This one comes from JSTOR. It's about the kind of the early history of film. It's a little bit of a pop culture retrospective, I suppose. There was a trend in the early 1900s where the film itself was very expensive. You know, people weren't making these one hour long narratives. They were sort of limited to like these 30 second to maybe three minute movies that they were able to make at a time. And so there was a fad of what are called trick films. And it was basically special effects showcases. And ah. they're kind of most often associated with this one director named Georges Méliès. He's the one who made the movie with the big moon that has a human face and then there's a can stuck in the eye. Yes. Oh. So, yeah, that's like one of his most famous. But this guy made so many films and he was really, really into the idea of what kind of special effects can I do with this new medium? And uh, unfortunately, what this article kind of goes into the history of is the idea that a lot of these special effects generally involved wacky things happening to working class women. Like, that was kind of hmm. the joke of the day. <laughs> um, hmm. And some of them were, you know, a little more harmless, and some of them were pretty grotesque. So, like, the 1903 <laughs> British short Mary Jane's Mishap, this accident prone maid is kind of trying to clean the fireplace, and there's a little bit of slapstick where she gets herself all messy, and then she fills the fireplace with paraffin and accidentally explodes herself out of the chimney like a rocket. And uh, then uh, later she appears as a ghost hovering over her grave. And so they were showing off oh. this, like, well, we can make kind of a transparent woman on this film. And, oh and so, gosh. you know, she gets to be a ghost, I guess. But this was, uh. like, this was a really common thing. There's a shocking incident where the maid electrocutes herself. There's Nora's Fourth of July, which is pretty obviously more explosions. And the, the historian who's really gotten all into this is she's a cultural scholar named Maggie Hennefeld. 
And she said maids in these films were almost always Irish because that fit the prejudices of the day. They were sort of making fun Mm -hmm. of these bumbling maids. And, of course, these were all silent films. So the way they showed that they were Irish was through the dialogue printed on the screen. You know, they would give them these really overly aggressive, typed out Irish accents on the subtitles. (laughs) And she said there's actually so many of these you can categorize them into eight different categories. There's combustion. There's micrographia, which is like a person is really, really small next to somebody normal sized and they're sort of manipulating the distance there of the lens. There's dismemberment, where the limbs kind of come off and are doing their own thing, but you can't see the rest of the body. There's quick change metamorphosis, gradual metamorphosis, tableau vivant, which is where women would sort of pose initially as paintings or statues and then spontaneously, you know, come to life and do funny antics. Uh, they had undercranking, which was sort of you crank the film slower than it's supposed to as you're recording. So then when you play it back at full speed, you get this absurd speeding up of various movements. Hmm. And, of course, slapstick corporeality, which is just <laughs> slapstick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but she noted, you know, this is aside from the sort of general uh, prejudice and bigotry of the day, this also mirrored real risks that working class women faced. She said they had Mm. crinoline skirts were the cheap alternative to the big thick petticoat that the upper class wore, but the crinoline was highly flammable. And so it was actually really common for maids to be killed or injured because their skirts caught fire in the kitchens (gasps) they were cooking. And so it gets really dark when you start thinking about like, oh yeah, they're laughing at real horrible (laughs) accidents that happen to people, but instead they're blowing them out of the chimney like a cannonball. So it, and of course, as the industry got a little more mature and they ended up being able to make longer films, then actual narratives came into it. But Mm. for the entire period that they were limited to these short things, they didn't do a whole lot of love stories. They didn't do a whole lot of drama. It really was just about this horrible thing happens to somebody. Ha ha ha. (laughs) So Um, basically America's Funniest Home Videos, but scripted and in little short bursts of vignettes. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And, you know, okay, some of them okay. some of them are funny. I mean, you can watch them as long as you stay, as long as you're ignorant of the fact that these are all happening to working class women of a particular <laughs> uh, nationality. In the idea of like, oh, look, she blew herself up. We still have stuff like that today. It's really just that the overtones at the time were definitely being picked up by the audience. And that makes them a little less comfortable. <laughs> yeah. At least nowadays, for the most part, the people you blow up. There's a rationale for why they deserve to be blown That's up. That's right. You have enough time. To you know, make a story. there's a narrative at least. I don't know if we can call it rationale, but certainly a narrative. <laughs> <laughs> when you blow the bad guys, they're the bad guys. You don't have to explain. Yes, they have families, and they're gonna. No nuance them. required. <laughs> right. Next link. Next link. This next link uh, kind of keeps us in a little bit of a dystopian mood. The Guardian's Oliver Millman reports that a plan to release genetically modified mosquitoes in Florida gets the go-ahead. Woohoo! Oh, oh, that's never... I, you know, I'm very suspicious of stuff like that. Well, you know, you put something out in the <laughs> ecosystem and then it has horrible side effects you did not predict. Right, like we were just talking about viruses and how they are actually supporting a larger ecosystem in ways that we still don't fully understand. But 
why not start with mosquitoes? Because it's already going to start happening in Florida. And get ready. A second trial is planned for Texas. I thought you were going to say, why not start with Florida? Like, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, at first I was like, ha ha, Florida. And then I saw that Texas is even just right behind them. Like, well, that's, you know, contextually appropriate. But basically, there's a plan to release about 750 million genetically modified mosquitoes And a state regulator in Florida has approved the idea. But Jennifer, you're not alone. There are a (laughs) lot of objections from a lot of environmentalists. Some critics are saying that the risks of, quote, a Jurassic Park experiment have not fully been assessed. (laughs) So what, what are they supposed to do? So basically, there is a British-based biotech company called Oxitec, and they've targeted the U.S., some interesting language, as a test site. (laughs) They've basically (laughs) created a special version of 80s Egypti mosquitoes, and these mosquitoes will contain a protein that, when passed down to female offspring, will kill them. And, it is hoped, prevent them from biting people and spreading diseases like dengue, fever, and Zika, because if they're dead, they can't bite you. So these mosquitoes are designed to murder other mosquitoes, basically? They're basically meant to mate with other mosquitoes and pass down a protein that will create lady mosquito genocide. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The people who are in favor of this trial say that only modified male mosquitoes, which do not bite people, will be released. Therefore, there should be no danger to the public. But there are some conservation groups who intend to sue the EPA for allegedly failing to ascertain the environmental impact of the scheme. Apparently, there have been opponents of the plan who rallied outside the Florida Keys Mosquito Control District office because they're targeting the Florida Keys as the first phase in Florida where they're going to be doing this. But as J.D. Hansen, policy director for the International Center of Technology Assessment and Center for Food Safety, What could go wrong? We don't know, because they unlawfully refused to seriously analyze environmental risks. And there are a lot of people in Florida who are not consenting to the genetically engineered mosquitoes or to being human experiments, which is essentially what's going to happen here. Yeah, I mean, how can they even track the results? I mean, are they just taking a sample of the mosquito population afterwards and being like, well, it seems like there's less? Or are they going to go out and catch female mosquitoes? Like, I have so many questions about this. You are not alone. And the article is pretty thin in terms of the actual testing or rollout or parameters parameters of data gathering. So much of this feels so terribly wrong, but it's already been approved in Florida. I mean, there's definitely some pushback. Hopefully it'll get slowed down. Not sure 2020 is the year that we really want to try to mess with this, Uh, you know, all things considered. Well, there's a little bit of hope. If it works and they're able to deploy some of this stuff in places where malaria is a real issue, I can see why there's motivation to create something like this. But you got to have a little bit of humility as far as maybe we should find out if there's any side effects to what we've done to these mosquitoes before we just dump 750 million of them into the state. Exactly. It's a very human-centric kind of initiative. And malaria and dengue fever, these are very dangerous diseases across the world. And granted, the Florida Keys has a lot of marshland, and so they're just thick with mosquitoes. So it makes a great deal of sense to focus on where they're concentrated. But so much about this article just raised red flags from the fact that it's a British biotech company that is, quote, targeting America. (laughs) And that we're starting with Florida, which is already getting hammered by COVID. And And the Hurricanes are coming. Don't forget them. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe if hurricanes usually come with swarms of mosquitoes when they're dumping a bunch of water and stuff like that. So 
I don't know. I, I can't really make a judgment on whether this is going to be good or bad. But if it's already happening, I guess we will find out. Yeah. <laughs> the thing I just keep imagining is when they release the swarm, like just a solid black cloud of just under a billion mosquitoes, right? I mean, that's what that's going to be. <laughs> oh, yeah, unless they're like depositing eggs or something. I'm, I'm really not sure on the details. I would research it if it didn't squick me out so badly because I don't like mosquitoes. Normally, I'd be super in favor of it, but the timing just feels a little too doomy. Mm-hmm. Well, and I had, yeah. I did not know that only female mosquitoes could bite people. I thought all mosquitoes bit people. So, I mean, that's, we yeah. learned something, you know? Hashtag not all mosquitoes, Jennifer. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from fizz.org and is by Lonnie Schechtman. Are planets with oceans common in the galaxy? Okay, well, how are we defining oceans? Because I feel like that's going to be a big semantic issue here, right? Yeah, I think it's literal (laughs) ice oceans that are clearly have sources of water beneath them or just straight up Earth style oceans of water. Water. So we're talking like real water, real oceans here. Okay. And so NASA scientists say it is probably likely. So there is this planetary scientist, already cool, named (laughs) Lene Quick, who specializes in volcanism and ocean worlds, which is just, yeah, super cool, super badass in my opinion. So several years ago, she began to wonder whether any of the more than 4,000 known exoplanets, which are planets beyond our solar system, might resemble some of the watery moons around Jupiter and Saturn. While some of these moons don't have atmospheres and are covered in ice, they're still among the top targets in NASA's search for life beyond Earth. For instance, Saturn's moon Enceladus and Jupiter's moon Europa, which scientists classify as ocean worlds, are really good examples. From both those moons, plumes of water erupt, so they can tell that these bodies have subsurface oceans beneath their ice shells, and they have enough energy to drive the plumes of water, which are two requirements for life as we know it. So Lene Quick says that if we're thinking about these places being possibly habitable, maybe bigger versions of them in other planetary systems are habitable too. What they did is they conducted a mathematical analysis of several dozen exoplanets, I believe 53, and Quick and her colleagues learned that more than a quarter of the exoplanets that they studied could be ocean worlds, with the majority probably harboring oceans beneath the layers of surface ice similar Mm -hmm. to Europa and Enceladus. And in fact, many of these planets could actually be releasing more energy than Europa and Enceladus as well. But I mean, these are all still very, very far away. I mean, it's one of those, like, they know it's out there, but we're not anywhere near being able to get there. Yeah, very true. And they actually talk about how this is purely a mathematical model right now. And scientists can't test Quick's predictions because they're just too far away. And they're also so far that they're currently drowned out by the light of their stars. Our telescopes can't see them yet. Ah. But in the future, they might be able to measure this by looking at the heat emitted from an exoplanet or by detecting volcanic or cryovolcanic, which is uh, liquid or vapor instead of molten rock, Mm -hmm. eruptions in the wavelengths of light that's emitted by molecules in the planet's atmospheres. So this gives them a better idea of where to go looking once they have Mm -hmm. the ability to go looking. Exactly. It helps them narrow down from the thousands or infinite number of exoplanets that are out there. Mm -hmm. So the assumptions that go into the mathematical models are just educated guesses, but like we said, they can help the scientists narrow down the list of planets to search for. So to look for these possible ocean worlds, Quick's team selected these 53 exoplanets with sizes most similar to Earth, though they could have up to eight times the mass. 
They also assume that the plants of the size are more solid than gaseous and thus more likely to support liquid water on or below their surfaces. Mm-hmm. Once they got these plants identified, Quick and her team sought to determine how much energy each one could be generating and releasing as heat. So there's two types of heat. The first is radiogenic heat, which is generated over billions of years by the slow decay of radioactive material in a planet's mantle and crust. And so this rate of decay depends on the planet's age as well as the mass of its mantle. So that's just one source of heat that they accumulate. And then there's another source of heat, which is tidal force, which is energy that's generated from the gravitational tugging Mm. when two objects orbit each other. So planets that are in stretched out or elliptical orbits shift the distance between themselves and their stars as they circle them. Mm -hmm. And this is interesting. I did not know this. This actually leads to changes in the gravitational force between the objects and causes the planets themselves to stretch, which generates heat. What? So, yeah, right? Like, literally the entire planet is being stretched by that gravitational force. And that's the back and forth of the fact that the liquid, the ocean of whatever liquid it is, is being pulled from one side to the other during this orbit. Yeah, I think it's the oceans, but it's also tectonics. So as that happens, I believe the volcanoes or cryovolcanoes that are in place will get moved around, and the tectonics, the plates as they shift, will also cause heat to be discharged. And this is really important to know because by measuring the second source of heat, they can tell whether or not a planet has too much volcanic activity because if you have too much of that, then it'll turn the entire world into a molten nightmare, as the article says. <laughs> a so molten we can just nightmare. Mark that one off the list. We're not going to the <laughs> yeah. lava world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whereas too little volcanic activity will shut down the release of gases that make up the atmosphere, which will just leave a cold, barren surface like Europa. So what we really need is just the right amount of volcanic activity that will support a livable wet planet like Earth. So what I'm hearing Mm. is hashtag not all volcanoes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So in the next decade, NASA's Europa Clipper will explore the surface and subsurface of Europa and provide more insights about the environment beneath the surface. And they're hoping that the more they learn about Europa and other potentially habitable moons of our system, the better they'll be able to understand other worlds that are similar around stars. Ultimately, the forthcoming missions will give us a chance to see whether ocean moons in our own solar system could actually support life. And if we find chemical signatures of life within our own solar system, we now will know how to look for similar signs Mm. at interstellar distances. Mm -hmm. And statistically, if we've got signs of life are so close to us, surely they've got to be on other planets outside of our solar system. Yeah, absolutely. In my personal opinion. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Not co-signed by NASA. (laughs) Yeah, no. (laughs) Way approved. Yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. Well, we've already brought up Texas, so we're going to take a brief foray back into Texas here. Obviously, (laughs) a lot of Texas residents know that there is a lot of smuggling that goes on between the border with Mexico, right? Uh, And and it kind of, it goes both ways. There's just a lot of smuggling over borders. That's what borders are for. But but this article from The Guardian goes into a very particular item that is being smuggled. And I'd like to say at the start, I really like it when The Guardian writes about Texas in particular. Like there seems (laughs) to be a fascination that the British have with Texas. Yes. Where I read great articles about Texas from The Guardian that I don't see anything about 
actually in Texas. Like in Texas, they're like, yep. we don't care. But the, the guard is like, oh, wow, this is fascinating. <laughs> but, well, basically, uh, I, Brad's been watching a lot of Top Gear and he's noticed that that kind of like legendary mythology of Texas is a very British kind of thing. They all, they often refer to a lot of our landscape as the outback, as if we're the Australia of the US, <laughs> which kind of makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it really does. So in this particular case, special agents for the Department of Fish and Wildlife recently busted a major smuggling ring that was smuggling a particular type of cactus. What? Yeah, they they Wait, seized... can this cactus get you high? Is that is that why? Uh, yes. Yes it can. <laughs> 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 you got it. <laughs> they seized over 4000 items of the living rock cactus, Areocarpus fissuratus. The fissuratus being presumably because it grows in rock. It grows in these little cracks, and it's very, very rare. It only grows in the rocks of Big Bend Park in Texas, which is a big oh. park, but it's that's the only place in the world it grows. Wow. But it's not like all of the other cactuses. One botanist, Karen Little, said, it's the teddy bears of cacti. It is spineless, <gasps> and it's soft and plushy. So <laughs> it's, it's the sweet cactus. One of the things that kind of makes it desirable outside of its hallucinatory properties, as you noted, are that uh, <laughs> it, like most cactuses, it's sort of stumpy and grayish green most of the year. But in the autumn, this one in particular develops these huge, vivid pink flowers. And Ooh. so they're really beautiful and they're rare. So like a lot of horticulturalists are interested in them as well, which unfortunately supports the smuggling trade. Mm, um, mm -hmm. The thing that makes them hallucinogenic is an alkaloid called hordenine, and it's mild. It's not as good of a high as you could get from cheaper sources. <laughs> so you got to think there's like, there's some connoisseur drug addictions going on here. But uh, <laughs> the species is endangered, unfortunately, oh. largely due to the smuggling. They take about 10,000 plants a year, they estimate, and it takes decades for these plants to grow to maturity. So oh, no. it truly is. They're going to wipe them out in a very short time if they can't put a wow. clamp down on this smuggling operation. They go a little bit into the fact that the Department of Fish and Wildlife really is serious about this. And they have actually put quite a lot of technology into their operations. They have agents go undercover as tourists and try <laughs> to sort of infiltrate these things and, you know, go in acting like they want to buy a special cactus for their niece back in Florida, I guess. And uh, they have... <laughs> Sometimes the agents will plant GPS trackers on the trucks because they say, okay, we found this smuggler, but we want to get to the bigger ring. Like these are just right. as big as any sort of drug busts where they sort of take them nice and slow and try to take out the bigger fish as opposed to waiting to just get this one guy who's dug a right. cactus out of the ground. Yeah. I mean, I've been imagining this entire time a horticulturalist kingpin. Right? Like that's what we're talking about, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And he's got like a nice green suit. He, I mean, he's like a Batman yeah. villain, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. I got a quickie here from BBC News. I almost want to read it out loud just as it is because it's so short. But the headline is Vienna police fine man 500 euros for, quote, massive intestinal wind. Oh, wow. That's illegal now? Like, I... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's not often that people face financial consequences for breaking wind in public. It's kind of a social taboo. But mm -hmm. one man in Vienna was fined 500 euros because he did so at police. So it was like it was a directed aggressive thing. Yeah. In the words of Monty Python, he farted in their general direction and <laughs> paid the price. Um, the city's police have defended the fine, saying it was really for more than that. Um, quote, of course, no one will be reporting 
reported for accidentally letting one go once, but basically the charge sheet showed that he was issued for violating public decency. It was shared on social media because, of course, the police department said the suspect, quote, had already behaved in a provocative manner when he was approached by police in the early hours of June 5th. He then rose from a park bench, quote, looked at the officers and apparently intentionally released a massive intestinal wind in the immediate vicinity of the officers. So, I mean, basically, they they got him under, like, biohazard laws. Like, I can't imagine there's a law on the books that says you can't fart at an officer. But if they say, oh, it's like spitting on somebody, like it's a biohazard kind of threat. I mean, they've got the perfect legal doctrine of whoever smelt it. That's held up in court, I think. (laughs) We may find out there's no word on this article whether he is going to contest the charges, whether he has already paid the fine. Uh, I'm guessing this just sort of serves as a general warning in the current environment that we're in. Some of us may take heed, others may take Bino. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. Okay, this is also a short one. This article comes from popularmechanics.com and is written by Carolyn Delbert. And this one talks about that optical illusion, which is a really classic one where you've got a gradient that goes from black to sort of light gray or a dark gray to a light gray. Then in the area of the dark gray, you've got a light dot. And then in the area of the light gray, you have a dark gray dot. And they're actually the same color. Yes, they're actually the same color. And so one of the things that they've been trying to figure out about this illusion is whether or not this is a contextual illusion. As in, does it depend on the way that our eyes are working together? Is it a stereographic thing? Mm. Or is this a a learned behavior of our eyes that has occurred over, you know, just years of using our eyes and therefore we get used to this sort of illusion? Mm So MIT researchers in a new paper went through three studies. The first one involved asking a group of American grad students to decide the relative brightness of images. So the depictions of contextual brightness were shuffled and moved around, some light on dark surfaces, some dark on light, and the students were asked to identify which were light and dark. Mm. In the second study, researchers presented the same images but had subjects wear glasses that isolated each eye. So by controlling which images each eye could see separately, they actually concluded that the optical illusion comes from something innate within the eye, and it has nothing to do with the way that normal vision acts in stereo. So if you cover one eye and try and look at this illusion, you'll still see the exact same effect. And this is good to know because many illusions do work this way, like magic eye pictures and shallow 3D of movies or the Nintendo 3DS. (laughs) Now, the third study is very interesting as well. Researchers actually had the opportunity to study a group of young children in India who were congenitally blind, but could have their sight restored by surgery. (laughs) And what they found is that they actually responded to the optical illusion the exact same way that people with years of vision do. So all three of these studies actually point to one theory, which is that this optical illusion really happens somewhere inside of the eyeball. And that's how our perception perceives these things. Well, and I guess you could just ask newborn infants, but you can't. Yeah. Because they're babies. Right. <laughs> yeah. Now, baby. <laughs> that's where you get into like really cruel stuff where it's like you only feed them if they point to the one that's the like, it's a bad idea. Don't don't take scientific advice yeah. from me. Well, I'm glad you're disclaiming it. Right. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, this one is uh, a little bit sad, but overdue. It's a article from astronomy.com 
about a place that I bet you've never heard of called Nabta Playa. Am I right? Never heard of Ooh, it? No, but it sounds mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. is there like a Burning Man event that they have there? <laughs> there is not. Uh, it is in the middle of the Sahara Desert. But comparatively, I imagine everyone has heard of Stonehenge, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is basically a Stonehenge. This is a stone circle that is connected to the motion of the stars. It's an early astronomical calendar created by a group of people that lived in that part of the world several thousand years ago. In fact, more than 7,000 years ago, which is a good 1,500 to 2,000 years older than Stonehenge. Huh. So the article, on the one hand, it's going into like, let's talk about Napta Playa. It's really cool. But also there's a little bit of a, why are we not talking about this thing? Why are we so centered on Stonehenge? Which is frankly, kind of not that special. There's actually, they said 35,000 megalith structures in Europe alone. And Stonehenge is not the oldest. It's not the biggest. It's just sort of the one that we've all attached this cultural significance to. But Nabda Playa is actually really cool. Uh, It was discovered in 1973, which is pretty relatively late. And it wasn't understood as an astronomical calendar until 1998. Because, first of all, it was kind of halfway buried under sand when they found it. And also because of the typical, you know, we just don't study things in that part of the world with the same vigor that we do in the Western world. And so when this paper came out in 1998, even then, they still called it the Stonehenge of the Sahara, when really we should be saying that Stonehenge is the Napta Playa of England. Yeah, Um, yeah. But since then, they have done a lot of research into it, and they've learned a lot about the culture of the people who build it. They say they were Bedouin nomads who used several stone circle locations, actually, to sort of navigate the desert in this cycle based on the availability of water throughout the year. You know, Nabta Playa was actually pretty dry most of the year, but then when the summer monsoon season came, it would have a reliable source of water for about four months. And so mm. they were they were traveling with the sources of the water, and they built stone circles everywhere they went to kind of get them back to each successive one. One of the archaeologists working on the project noted that his modern Bedouin guide, while he's, you know, going out into the Sahara, digging all day, and then kind of coming back to camp, The guide was even today still using the stars to navigate them back to their camp in the dark by sticking his head out the car window while they drove. So, I mean, this is clearly something that has been passed on and is still being used today by people who simply do not have any need for GPS. They've got their stars. (laughs) Well, I mean, all of these figures and structures were because of ancient aliens anyway, right? Right. Well, and that was one of the things they said is a bit of a problem because, well, (laughs) (laughs) while they would love to study some of this stuff, they kind of get grouped in with the people who are, you know, talking about aliens. And so it's actually kind of hard to get grants to study this Mm. in the astronomical Mm -hmm. connections because everyone's like, that gets a little dicey. I don't know if we want to go that far. We're not sure what you're going to try to say with this research. Yeah. So, you know, like a lot of things being studied in Africa right now, it's changing the narrative of where this stuff originally came from, how these cultures moved around. And at any rate, they should definitely be given credit for making a stone circle thousands of years earlier than some of the ones that we sort of revere today as being very cool. Yeah. I mean, even if it isn't, you know, like if they're having trouble getting grant money because of the association with ancient aliens types, you know, I'm sure that our new system of funding things, a.k.a. GoFundMe. That's true. Can come to the rescue and get some answers for us, right? right. Use the alien lovers, man. Don't shun them. Just say, yeah, give me your money and uh, I'll get you the answers you get. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. We hope you come back next week. Some of the articles we did not get to today. Google co-founder Sergey Brin has a secret disaster relief squad. This man sees numbers as squiggles and fighting forest fires with fire. 
pyrotechnics, and flaming ping pong balls. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you'd like to support us and keep us doing the good work that we love to do, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.